0: but sharpen iron this is the kingdom project and i'm your host marcus hall hey everybody what's going on welcome to a new episode we are uh in revelation on this one As you can tell by the title, we've been making our way. This is the Revelation series. Um, Pretty, we're getting close to being done. So um, I think there's after I would say after this episode, there's going to be two or three more, and that will be it. I'm trying to deal, um, trying to figure out how to deal with chapters 21 and 22. Um, I do whole like. (laughs) let me see how to put this in preterism, there's orthodox preterism, partial preterism, full preterism. And then you got the others that get hyper and that are way, way out there on the, on the fringes, if you will. Um, and I, you know, you can make a case for the partial, um, everything up until those last two chapters, or you can also make a good case for all of it. Um, all of it being fulfilled, and it is the church and now some will say twenty is a like um chapter twenty is more it transcends and it's a periscope uh, view and then twenty one and twenty two still deal with the stuff that was happening soon um so twenty um uh, chapter twenty um overlaps and continues and go past, goes past uh the last two chapters, which those happened in the First century because it deals with the New Jerusalem and it's the Church and the Gospel going out and all that. So I'm trying to just figure out how I want to deliver that for you guys, just because there are so many views on that point when it comes to that. That um, I'm I'm not like I I hold to preterism and that hermeneutic, but you know it it's not something that's 100% necessary. So it's, you know, I'm not purposely trying to push or have an agenda here to to make more preterists, like per, on a per, purpose, you know. That's not really the full purpose. It's just sharing what I have learned and what has changed a lot for me and my views when it comes to end times and eschatology in general and all that and how it that hermeneutic actually does change so much on how you interpret the bible and then it makes it it just makes it like puts it in context so much better and it makes it so much easier to understand all around i think so it's not like I'm oh you this is the only way like I'm friends with futurist. I'm friends with, you know, partial preterists. It it like it's a secondary thing and it's fun to discuss and have conversations about. It's fun to listen to debates and things like that. Some people get really hardcore on it. Um, and I could understand getting maybe a little hardlined on a couple of issues um, when versus futurism, but is it something I'm willing you know, a hill I'm willing to die on, you know, not necessarily, it would be like, hey, this is my stand, this is where I'm at on this, and I'll explain it to you, and that's really been the purpose of doing so much eschatology in this podcast, okay, so I will figure out how to deliver those the best that I can, or how I want to, or just, because sorta, I just wanna leave that part up to to you these are more this is all primer stuff just to whet your appetite to get you into the word and search the scriptures and that's that's the purpose of it you know it's not to to be like this is the way and you should believe this way things like that you know i believe it's important to see it this way and it does i do believe eschatology matters and i do believe a lot of the future stuff is nonsense and all the prophecies and all the the end time pundit people and stuff like that. Um, I, I do think a lot of that does a lot of harm and confuses people and I've, you know, thank God I've been freed from it and I've seen others getting free from it as well. And so, uh, I'll stop rambling. Uh, so that's where I stand on that. So anyway, just giving you an update other than that, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, there's some Twitter stuff out there. It's only on Twitter. It gets funny sometimes. Um, Instagram can get funny as well sometimes. And uh, so you can follow us uh, on there and like and comment and and ask questions. Um, You're always welcome to ask questions and send email. There's people I correspond with through email a lot because of YouTube and um, other YouTubers and other people uh, just in general that email. And uh, that's always available um, in the description and at the end of the podcast and all that good stuff. So if there's... Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, engaging in good, healthy conversation. And that's really the point, and for people to just to get in the Word and share and actually search the Scriptures. Now, with that being said, we're going to move on now to the seven bulls of wrath in Revelation and get into this, okay? So, um, Revelation chapter 15, bring it up here on my computer, uh, we're going to look here. This is the seven angels with the seven plagues, okay? And we will look. It's That's a very short, uh, very short chapter. Um, it's only eight verses. Um, but verse 8, it says, um, let's see here. That's the wrong one. Seven, sorry. Verse 7, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls Fool of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, and it goes on to say, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So this is what we're going to be talking about, and other um, other issues as well. Okay, so remember the third the the three sets, okay, the three sevens. This is the third set of the three sevens. Now, John's vision of the outpouring of the wrath of God will come now to the forefront of this uh, vision and this epistle, okay? So, again, as we just remind ourselves, doing first century context here, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, the time was near. So, the opening of the seven seal book was an edict of judgment. And it was delivered by God against Jerusalem. Following those seals, the seven trumpets sounded a warning against them. And so, now we are going to look and describe the seven bowls of wrath as they were to be poured out upon the city of Jerusalem and on its temple. Okay. So, before John gives uh, his vision of the, the outpouring of the seven bowls in chapter 16, there's a couple of events that deserve a, a, attention in chapters 14 and 15. Um, he, it, some, would say, some say here he's protecting the integrity of God. And probably so. Um, I would say that's correct. Um, He does this in chapter fourteen. All right, John would give a vision of Jesus on Mount Zion with uh, the hundred and forty-four thousand saints. John, John was remembering that even in the midst of destruction uh, of of Jerusalem that there are people that are being protected and being preserved, okay? So, also in there, John spoke about the nature of hell, <laughs> um, which to some people is questionable as well, but I am just laying that out there because that's how we're going to see it when you read it. Um, so, uh, this moves then to chapter 15 where we're at that John returns he returns to a vision of heaven. And then in chapter 16, there's these reapers who carry out the will of God that are going to appear. And one of the four living creatures would give to seven angels, the seven bowls of wrath, which would be poured out upon Jerusalem. And it's during the the outpouring of the sixth bowl that John describes the battle of Armageddon. Okay, now also in chapter 14, verse eight, there's, there was this n- another name given to uh, Jerusalem, and John called her Babylon the Great. And John makes reference to this new name, kind of only in passing, and he will give uh, he'll give more time to the meaning of this new name later in a later chapter. So as Preliminary to the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, John shows this picture um, of the Lamb, who is Jesus, standing on Mount Zion with one hundred and forty-four thousand, and this is in fourteen. So we're backtracking a little bit. Fourteen, verse one. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now some don't believe that Mount Zion is to be taken literally here um, nor is the number 144, thousand to be taken literally. Uh, we know obviously the Lamb is Jesus and these this group of people had his name and the the name of his father written on their foreheads, all right? So this number represented the early Jewish church that came from the twelve tribes of Israel, and uh, from the twelve apostles. They worshipped Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father with their minds, their hearts, and their souls. So the important point to see here is the contrast of Jesus, uh, the contrast of Jesus, the Lamb of God, with the other Lamb or the one who had some appearance like a lamb that was presented in the previous chapter uh, that we, we've spoke about that, that when he says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. All right. We saw that and this lamb represented the land beast that we identified as the Jewish priesthood or Jewish high priest. All right. So there, there were two parallel references to a lamb Then in chapter 13 and 14. And the purpose of the parallel was to contrast the difference between them. The Jewish priesthood represented apostate Israel. Jewish uh, Jesus (laughs) represented the true Israel, which is the church. And so Jesus was in control of Mount Zion, not the apostate Jewish high priest or priesthood uh Jesus Jesus was sovereign and would guarantee the safety of this number here that um it is said to be 144,000 but there would, you know I don't think like again don't take it literally uh but he's guaranteeing the safety um even as he brought judgment upon apostate Israel so um Some here then suggest that the lamb in chapter 14 was the same lamb that that opened the the seven-sealed book in chapter 5, which is Jesus, right? Um, In chapter 5, the bowls were full of incense. In chapter 14, the bowls are now wrath. So Jesus began the judgment of Israel by opening the seven-sealed book, which released the prayers of the church into the presence of heaven. And here he is directing the final judgment, which released the wrath on the apostate uh, Israel or Jews. So as John describes the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, he's reminding his readers again that if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's chapter 14, 9 and 10. So really here, it's there's not going to be any rest day or night for the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's where people get this reference for hell here. Um, Of course, are you to take the torment goes up forever and ever, literally? Or is that showing complete destruction? I've done episodes on another view of hell on I Hold to Conditional Immortality, so you could check that out if you're interested, all right? Um, But here, if you're reading this in the first century, that's a very uh, fearful language, okay? This is destruction. Um, whether it's hell or not, it doesn't really matter. It's destruction, all right. So, uh, yeah, again, this is this gives everyone cause, even from then, even to now, to seek Christ as their Savior, all right. Um, on the other hand, there that for those who are in Christ and have the mark of God on their forehead, these are the people who love God and and think uh, think God's thoughts after Him. There's a wonderful promise here, which is uh, a favorite passage um, for Christians at funerals. And, and that is, um, this is, uh, and, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, right? Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for, for their deeds, follow them. So, on a side note there, if this, even if so many people take Revelation and say, even if they don't say it's fulfilled, they say still most of it was for first century, uh, the first century church, and it was fulfilled then, even up to this point. They they go on all the way to chapter 20, or um, yeah. And so right there, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In the first century. This would be this spiritual resurrection then. This would go against what a lot of people hold to a physical, literal resurrection of dead bodies out of the ground and all that. So it's saying by the time that this is happening, in that time period... Uh, 66 to 70 AD, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. From now on, forever, forevermore. Um, so to me, you take that with many other studies on resurrection of the spiritual aspect versus the physical aspect that many futurists hold, and th- that shows me that there everyone that's died since that time in the Lord uh, are blessed. Because this is speaking of resurrection. All right, so we move now. Air er, um, to the conclusion of the appear of chapter fourteen. It's the appearance of two separate reapers. Um, these two separate reapers had two separate functions. It seems both were accompanied by a voice coming out of the temple. And the first reaper was sitting on the white cloud and was one like a, a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right, so this seems to be a harvest reaper. And the word harvest is usually associated with good fruit. All right, so this could be associated with a good harvest. In verse four, these children of God were called the first fruits to God, and to the Lamb. So the first reaper appeared to be Christ, who's in the process of reaping the fruitful church for himself. So if you notice the language there, then in chapter 14, it says, an hour to reap has come. So the time was not near anymore. The actual hour had actually come. But for the people... Uh, or before judgment came upon apostate Israel, then God would gather together his people, the faithful ones. And now the second reaper comes with a sharp sickle in verse 17, and this particular angel was associated with fire. And it says he had come to reap the uh, clusters of grapes. Um, So the reaping of grapes then is, is usually associated with wrath in in the bible okay so it it says the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God alright so there's this literary device of a metaphor there that and the wine was pressed excuse me and the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a dis- distance of 200 miles. Now, so as Christ suffered outside the camp in his crucifixion, uh, so his enemies are pictured as suffering outside the camp as well because it's in Hebrews 13, 11, 12, it says for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin and are burned outside the camp therefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate um so the there were israelites dying outside of jerusalem as well as inside the city and then so looking into the accounts of josephus according to to him dead bodies and blood were all over the place there was bodies that were piled upon bodies um, they were decomposed um, and rotten, bodies were floating in the rivers and the seas, the water was completely red with blood and uh, John, John John's using hyperbole of blood being so deep that it came up to the horse's bridles this is when you ask if it's a metaphor or not because Josephus does talk about the blood being so deep that <laughs> It was indeed coming up to the horse's bridles. Um, either way, it's a horrifying sight. So it, it it would be like a city totally destroyed. Just I mean, this is just complete full on destruction. Okay, um, but yeah you you think of the this damage of soldiers and all that Josephus does describe a following a scene it says and and indeed the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a <laughs> a pestilential stench i can't even really remember or think of what that would would be like um it's off awful all right so this this is all the, this is the culmination of the sin of Israel here okay this is the way of the old covenant curses that god had laid out all right i've talked about that several times throughout the city or this the the series and here it is all these curses of the old covenant is happening okay Um, so, and we do find this in the Old Testament where Abraham, or Abram, right, was told that his descendants would occupy the land for the Amorites, uh, but not until the fourth generation. And then it, it says, and then in the fourth generation, they, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete in Genesis 15, um, It seems under Old Covenant circumstances um, and Old Testament times um, as a whole, I think that wickedness seemed to usually reach this pinnacle before God uh, brought some judgment. But he always gave warnings for it and told people to turn and repent. All right. So um, it's it's like the lamb has to be fattened before it's slaughtered. And Paul Paul talks about this. He predicted this about the Jews in his first epistle to the Thessalonians as he spoke about the Jews hindering the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says, so that, that they, the Gentiles, may be saved with the result that they, the apostate Jews, always fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's 1 Thessalonians 2. Sixteen. Um, so then we have this, uh, the these other w- these numbers here in Revelation fourteen, like two hundred miles, um, which is sixteen hundred stadia. A Stadia was a unit of measurement for long distances, distances like the measurement of a mile is today. Um, and so it's it's interesting. The land of Israel was actually about two hundred miles long from north to south. Often, uh, then, in the midst of what happens to be a metaphor, we can find something that can actually be interpreted very literally, and that's the case going on in 1420. Now, in chapter 16, the seven angels appear who will pour out the seven bowls of wrath. The contents of these bowls were called plagues, this is reminding the, the reader, the, the original audience, of the plague sin against the Egyptians when Israel was delivered under the leadership of Moses. Um, so there's some emphasis in a verse in 15.1. Right? It seems like I'm jumping over the place. Just stick with me. In Revelation 15.1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last? Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. Uh, so note the emphasis that here in this verse that this will be this is the final blow for them. This this his the wrath of God is finished when it comes to the this this old testament or the old covenant curses that they had made in their covenant. They are the last, and then we get this hymn. Alright, very interesting to note to futurist here that prior to the pouring out of these seven bowls of wrath, there's this singing, okay, going on, where it says they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is a, literally, it's the song of Moses, and it, it comes from the Old Testament, alright? So... There's the irony and parallelism that's going on here that came from the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. All right. This may be the reason the Song of Moses was coming. Uh, Some say it's coming from heaven, others say it's the people, the Jews. Um, But. The irony is the, 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 that contrary to the exodus of Israel from Egypt, that Israel is, 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 has become the victim here and is rather than the victor, okay? So the parallel here is presented to us in the use of plagues used both in Egypt and in Jerusalem, all right? So the theme of the song is that God is marvelous in all of his works and is, and is righteous and true in all of his ways. He's king of the nations. He's holy, And as the nations watch the work of God, the day will come when all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Um, Now that could be a reference then to the Gentile nations who become a part of the church. So chapter 15 then concludes with the transfer of of the seven bulls from one of the four living creatures to the seven angels who were called to pour them out. Um, and that's uh, what I read near the beginning of this episode. So the, these angels were dressed in linen. They were clean and bright and and girded around their chests with golden sausages. Sausage, sausage, <laughs> sausages. I'm thinking of sausage because it's been cooked in the house recently and it smells lovely. excuse me they were they were golden sashes (laughs) they were dressed like priests okay this was holy war if you will the angels were ready to bring judgment and this voice comes from the temple right it says then i heard a, a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels go and pour out on the earth or land, the seven bulls of the wrath of God. This is the beginning of chapter 16. Now, notice, if we go back to the Old Testament, notice the similarity of these executioners with those that are in Ezekiel, and I'll read it for you, where it says, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his uh, shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with with a riding case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the, 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 the bronze altar. Then the glory of the the God of Israel went up from the uh, the cherub on which it has been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the riding case. Now we see, notice here that if, if the certain man clothed in linen is distinguished from the other six men, then in actuality there were seven men as their seven angels in chapter 16 of Revelation. And the language here of Ezekiel and Revelation in, in regard to the mark of God on the forehead of, of his uh, elect, like the Lord's, this is another part of Ezekiel, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over uh all of the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Okay, but but to others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity or do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on him uh, or on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary." Alright, so they started with the elders who were before the temple. This is Ezekiel chapter 9, 4 through 6. So John, John's borrowing his language from the words of Ezekiel here. And so notice also in, in Revelation that everything was at a, the standstill until this final act was complete. Because it says, No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, it's like the quiet before the storm, if you will. Now, um, chapter 16 then contains the story of the outpouring of these seven bulls, all right? So, you have to remember this is not a picture of the actual events in Jerusalem as they were happening. This was a vision. It was going to happen later. It's important to make that distinction, all right? So, these the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets have. Uh, prepared the reader for the seven bulls john's writing at least three and a half years before that the destruction of jerusalem in 70 ad he's encouraging these churches that god would come into their rescue all right he's telling the churches how god would would protect them and how he would bring vengeance against the great enemy the apostate jews And he soon is going to answer the prayers of the martyrs from Revelation 6, okay? And so they they would soon witness the last of the the three plagues, okay? So now we get to the actual seven bulls and the seven plagues. And um, thinking back Old Testament, um, there were 10 plagues that God had inflicted upon Egypt. The last uh, plague was the, the the death of the firstborn child. Okay, um, there's definitely similarity between the seven bowls of wrath in Revelation and the ten plagues in Egypt. Uh, s- s- some of the plagues that God used to deliver Israel would now be used to bring judgment upon them. So the first plague that came from the first bowl was in the form of boils. Gross. Um so <laughs> so so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image all right this corresponds to the sixth plague on Egypt it also reminds the reader of job uh too cuz he had boils and and all this all over his body um it, for those in Israel who did, did not repent for their sins, this was going to be something that was continuous until it brought death. Okay, it's the fulfillment of the curse that's promised uh, to covenant breakers in Deuteronomy 28 27. So I keep bringing this up because there are no curses in the new covenant, okay? You have to see that there's old covenant curses that are taking place in the book of revelation. So it has to be, it's, it's being handed out to those who were in that covenant. All right. So Deuteronomy 28, 27, it says, the Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and the tumors and with the scab and with the itch. From which you cannot be healed, all right. So with the war was coming disease now, and this physical condition is just also probably a description of the physical ravages of what the Jews had to endure in their bodies before the death came. Now the second and the third plagues that came from the second and third bowls were described as a change of water in the blood. Now In Egypt, the water was turned to blood. And here, Christ, through the instrument of the angels, came to curse Israel as Egypt was cursed in the Old Testament. And it's interesting to contrast this curse on Jerusalem with the work of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Okay, so at Cana, he changed water and the wine. At Cana, he came to bless. But here, Jesus came to change water and the blood because he came to curse and so the second plague was poured out into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man it says in verse 3 and the third bowl was poured out into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became blood in verse 4 again this is this is the first plague upon egypt um, the changing of water and blood all right, so all, all the water from the sea to the springs and to the rivers was turned into to blood. All right, so um, the, the reason for this particular plague is described in verse six as God's retribution against the apostate Jews, where it says, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. So, again, the reference was to Israel, not particularly to Rome, although Rome was guilty of this too, but the blood previously poured out by unbelieving Jews was the blood of the church. So, in vengeance, God would pour out their blood as well. And remember, Jesus said, all the righteous blood from Abel on uh, would be on that generation's hands. So, now, which, you know, this is in, um, in Luke, all right. Comparing when you compare scripture with scripture, Luke eleven, we find this condemnation of the apostate Jews for sh- for shedding the blood of the saints. He says, "Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because." It was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. So, notice who was charged with the guilt of shedding the blood of the prophets, according to Christ. Even though the blood of the prophets have been shed by many previous generations, Jesus brings the charges against that generation. Okay? So, <laughs> moving to the fourth plague. I, yeah, I feel like I should take breaks and just put little music in the background and stuff. I've not done that in the, in the series much. I just like to just move along and, and do it. It probably makes for a better podcast. I don't know. But there's a lot of breaking in here. So I'm not going to do it for every plague. That would get redundant. Anyway, I just thought out loud. The fourth plague, all right, coming from the fourth bowl of wrath is scorching heat. All right, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. The final battle against the city. Um, did happen. In the heat of the summer. And it ended probably around in August of 70 AD. When the heat was overwhelming. But. There was actual fire that was burning the city. Okay. Um, the heat had in the temple. was You read Josephus. It's horrendous. And. Um, so people were caught up in the fire that that burned the temple and burned the city and burning to death in the midst of the fire is a horrible way to die, okay? So there's that. Now, the fifth plague was darkness. It says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. So this bull here also corresponds to the ninth plague upon Egypt. Um and we have said the the land beast is the Jewish priesthood, then the throne of the beast here in this verse is the temple or the synagogue of Satan. The temple was the worship center of the priesthood. Now, in Exodus, the plagues happened separately, uh, and they were moved before another plague would come. Um, Pharaoh would always uh, end up pleading for mercy, and God would remove the plague. But here... Um, they are all going. They continue to go. The plagues are uh, uh, (laughs) culminating is the word I was looking for. They're culminating here. Um, They continue to exist as one is added to another. So in regard here also to to the darkness... um, think of this the whole city it's on fire the black smoke's rising it's going up it's blocking the light of the sun the sky becomes dark with black smoke um so here we have this uh, metaphor um it's not in in, incompatible with a, a literal interpretation all right and that brings us to the sixth bowl of wrath that was poured out by the dragon and the beast and the false prophet they're called unclean spirits um, it says they are three unclean spirits, like frogs, and the reference to frogs then also makes you think of the second plague on Egypt. However, these here are these is this is evil, evil men. They're evil spirits or evil men, just consumed with sin. Before there, um, before there were details given about the damage done by the wrath of the sixth bowl, we're told that its first effect was upon. Uh, the river Euphrates, and we're told that the purpose for this um, here it says the sixth bowl is poured out on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that they would um, they that they would be prepared for the kings from the east. Okay, so a little geography here: the river Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the promised land so it was to be dried up so that the kings from the east would be able to cross over the dry land and come to aid the romans in the destruction of jerusalem so from from um from josephus then we know that rome often used armies um from the east to aid in their war engagements okay so um Then, then this moves. This starts to get into just straight up Armageddon now. Okay, so John mentioned three these three unclean, unclean spirits like frogs, and the pouring out of the sixth bowl. The identity um, of these should be evident. This is it's the dragon, it's the beast, it's the false false pro, uh, prophet. All right, um, uh, either just completely sinful people, or unclean spirits, or Satan. Rome and the Jewish priesthood, all right? So all three forces are gathering together for war in the presence of the kings of the whole world for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty, in verse 14. So uh, Rome would use all the forces of all other nations at its disposal to bring down Jerusalem, all right? She, she would even use the Jewish priesthood. And this war is called Armageddon. The term Armageddon is another word that brings fear to, to people today. <laughs> Most people don't know about the Bible, but they're familiar with 666 and Armageddon. Okay. Um, Armageddon is always the last battle and, and the last war that takes place between good and evil on earth before it, it all ends. All right. Um, some say well, I, Iran will attack Israel or and then Russia's going to come down from the north to help. You know, prophecy experts are predicting when this happens over and over again and in and, and, and their view, it's always in the generation of those who are living in that day. okay. So most every generation has been predicting this for their own generation forever. all right've they've, they've missed it, okay. Why? Because well, <laughs> because of what I'm about to say. Okay, why should we expect Armageddon to happen in our own day or in our own generation? Okay, <laughs> um, it's not something you have to fear, right? It, it's already happened, all right. It's happened two thousand years ago. The actual word Armageddon in the original Hebrew language consists of two parts from the Hebrew word Har Megido. And so, if you were to read it in the original Hebrew language um, and the transliterate, uh, transliterated into Greek text, then the person would read the first part as Har, which means mountain. The second part um, is Megiddo, which is the name of a field in the plain of Pal- Palestine. Okay, so it means the word Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo um it, it and it's not even a mountain this is a uh, there's no mountain there at all it's flat land it's a big field um this is a place where many many battles happened during all the biblical times so why is john referring to this place um with no mountain right as i said the wars happened there it was the place um it was famous to all Isra- israelites um, for a lot of reasons um it was a this strate- it was a strategic location in in the land of Israel for fighting off en- enemies because w- wars often co- concluded here and they were would either be won or lost all right but it, it's just the place where they they got to um this big field um you can look it up even you can find it people know where this is at and where it, where it is and Futurists will stand there and go, this is where the last battle or war of the world will take place. (laughs) Now, it's also the place where the last godly king of Judah died. Um, uh, That's King Josiah. All right. Uh, Bible students recognize the name of Josiah and Josiah's reform. Okay, he was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. We, we so we associate names with places, and Josiah was associated with Armageddon. All right, same with things that we have today. Okay, like the death of Lincoln, Ford's Theater, places like that. Um, in Second Kings 23 and 29, it says, In his days, Pharaoh, Nico, king of egypt went up to the king of assyria to the river euphrates and king josiah went to meet him and when pharaoh neko saw him he killed him at megado all right so his death then it, um he it happened at megado all right for an israelite it was like the end of the world okay so it 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 signified the last great battlefield of an empire to them when that happened there in Second Kings. So Armageddon is this metaphor of the last great battle of Jerusalem, and it's a reference to the destruction of the city in the 1st century. And that's what Armageddon really is. Okay, it's already happened. That's what it would have meant to the original audience reading John's epistle. So that brings us then to the seventh plague that's poured out by the seventh bowl. And it's described in terms of flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. It's chapter 16, um, verse 18. So along with the earthquake were... These huge hailstones, and it says there were a hundred pounds each that came down from heaven upon men. Okay, now this this core corresponds to the seventh plague of hailstones poured out upon Egypt, too. Now, um, <clears throat> these are actually stones, um, that's the way I see it, and by bi- other Bible scholars see it, they believe this was a picture of these heavy stones that were being heaved or thrown or catapulted upon Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers from outside the walls. They had painted them white. Um, this called the, would cause the walls uh, of Jerusalem to fall down, um, resulting, in, resulting in the collapse of the city. And so with the final blow then of the wrath poured out, this a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Uh, this is... Sixteen, seventeen. Uh, this was the last gra- uh, gasp for life, if you will. It was time for the undertakers then. And, and John put it well in metaphorical form. And ver- uh, chapter. This is sixteen twenty. It says, "And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Everything was gone. Nothing was left at the end of this destruction." In nine verse nineteen. Sorry, I said nine. Verse 19 is interesting because it says the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. And Josephus tells us that Jerusalem was divided into three factions of Jews who were actually killing each other before they were conquered by rome um so you know that 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 goes on (laughs) in there it's crazy all right um but before the romans could finish off the city the jews in essence actually destroyed themselves um as titus was approaching the city again by josephus we're told that it so happened that the sedition at Jerusalem was revived and parted into three factions, and that one faction fought against the other, which, um, which partition in, in such evil cases may be said to be a good thing and the effect of divine justice. Okay, so right there, here's the, that's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus against um, the apostates, against apostate Israel. Um, as it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus approached Jerusalem. He saw the city, and he wept over it, and he's saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's Luke 19, 41 through 44. So, that's pretty much it here. So, let's just uh, think of a couple of things before as we wrap this up. Um. We can see the character of God here. There's not just the new covenant believers, but to all those still in the Old Testament, the apostates, that in the midst of that judgment, God was being gracious, extending an offering of forgiveness upon repentance. In chapter 14, verse 6, God sent an angel to preach the gospel, and it says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, or land, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So Jerusalem was a global city, and it, so it had people present from all over the known world who came to make this the pilgrimages, uh, pilgrimages there. Um, people could have still repented and received Christ here, I believe. I really do believe that and could have fled and and heeded the words. In 16.9, um, chapter 16, verse 9, we find that after the fourth bowl was empty, John said, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And then in verse 11, it says, After the fifth bowl was empty, John said, And they did not repent of their deeds. Right? So it seems to me until it was all over, God was always extending his his hand, if you will. He extended it out uh, willingly to offer his grace of forgiveness to them. Um, even after... These plagues, these tragedies and suffering was being endured by these people because of their own sin. Um, Up to the point of their own death, God stands ready and willing to forgive and grant them mercy and uh, grace. You know, I think that's what is being said there. Um, So, uh, you know, obviously all a person must do is repent of his sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness, all right? So um but that that was being there. So if people were like, "Well, can't see, you know, Jesus and God doing this after all the New Testament stuff. That's why I refer to the old covenant curses out of Deuteronomy. Those had to come upon those for being unfaithful. Um but at the same time, all the warnings are coming um And after each Of these bowls of wrath That was a, Each bull of wrath was a chance For them to repent but over and over again It says they did not Repent okay So We have concluded then the three sevens We followed John As he's described the seven seals The seven trumpets The seven bulls of wrath It's all over In John's vision Jerusalem is destroyed it's complete destruction and chaos armageddon war uh, has taken place the enemy of the church who was called the false prophets dead god had predicted the collapse of the roman empire nero was dead the final end of nero and of the false prophet will be revealed in revelation 19 Um, chapter 20 it's going to describe some uh, um, final end of satan uh <laughs> which can be debatable. We'll get into that when we get into there. But um we then then uh, we'll get into the rest of it, the last of it. Um what happens after a war, right? There's funeral service, but there's a victory party. It's kinda gonna see see these two events take place and um we'll see uh um we'll, we'll see that we'll see the church then come out with the new bride and all that stuff and so the reader will see the promise of blessing um bl- blessing of the new covenant to be fully consummated and start taking place here on this earth um for all those who worship Jesus and are placed in Christ so that wraps up this this uh part of revelation and uh i hope you uh hope you got more information out of that i hope that clears up some things especially okay at the plagues and armageddon um so first century context again and it's just a primer there's still a lot of things i could have covered but trying to just give you the overarching uh interpretation or view of that as it would have been for uh the original audience as they received this from john all right there's another ep- episode if you have any questions comments disagreements you can send them my way at the kingdom project podcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on youtube facebook instagram wherever you would like it'll reach me and until next time must be a mustard seed be 11 thank you for listening